0: This is The Political Scene, a weekly conversation with New Yorker writers and guests about politics. It's Thursday, March 12th. I'm Eric Latch, a staff writer at The New Yorker, filling in for Dorothy Wickenden. I'd rather run against, I think, Biden than anybody. Uh, I think he's the weakest mentally. And I like running against people that are weak mentally. I think Joe is the weakest up here. The other ones have- Donald Trump may soon get his wish. After racking up victories on Super Tuesday and in this week's primaries in Michigan, Missouri, and Mississippi, Joe Biden looks very likely to become the 2020 Democratic presidential nominee. After a historically long primary season, we appear to be on the cusp of the general election. Donald Trump never really stopped running for president. He filed for re-election the day of his inauguration in 2017. After more than 12 months of Democrats jostling among themselves for votes, they, as in Biden presumably, will soon come directly up against the operation that Trump has been building all this time. Andrew Morantz, a New Yorker staff writer, recently wrote about Brad Parscale, Trump's 2020 campaign manager, and the architect of Trump's digital election strategy. Andrew joins me to discuss what he learned about Trump's campaign tactics in 2016, particularly when it comes to data collection and targeted advertising, and what we might expect in the general election. Andrew, uh, welcome. Uh, We're recording this in my apartment uh, because we're all working remotely this week. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, I don't feel that I'm getting sick from anything in this lovely bedroom, and the walls are a lovely
0: shade of blue. Yeah. So I guess the place to start is with Brad Parscale, who, when the 2016 campaign was happening, was kind of a background figure in Trump world, and then after Trump's surprise victory kind of emerges as a kind of central uh, player. He's now been elevated to campaign manager. Uh, of the 2020 campaign. So, can you tell us about his trajectory, sort of where he comes from, and how he links, ends up linking up with, with Trump?
1: Yeah. So, Brad Parscale, he was actually pretty savvy about staying out of the media limelight for a while. I think that was part of his strategy. Um, originally, he was a guy from Kansas. He uh, played college basketball in Texas, um, ended up getting an injury and uh, no longer being a college athlete, and just studied business. And from all accounts, uh, from folks who knew him then, he You know, he was interested in being a good businessman, being a competitor, trying to make his mark on society in some unspecified way. And the way he ended up finding was through web development, basically building websites. For a few years, he was just building websites for your local, you know, landscaping company and, you know, nothing particularly remarkable. Uh And then in 2012-ish, he lands a big client named Donald Trump, uh, who wants him to build websites for Trump wineries and for Melania's skincare products. And, you know, this is just a big client and he's just sort of doing it for money. Although, uh, notably, the
0: way he got the contract was by bidding way lower than anyone else. He bit he's, you know, uh, there's different aspects of Trump's business that sort of migrate into politics when he starts running for president. So it seems like Parscale is part of that, right? Yeah. He, you know, first of all, whether
1: through intuition or through a lucky guess or whatever, he nails two of the main things that you need if you're going to be a Trump family loyalist, which is frugality and loyalty. And so he bids way low. They call him and say, hey, are you missing a zero on this proposal? And then he uh, is extremely conspicuously loyal to the family. He basically gets considered one of the family. And through Jared Kushner, he then has an in. You know, Jared Kushner sort of taps Brad Parscale to essentially run everything social media related for the campaign. Yeah. So over Pascal's career, his web development sort of migrates into search engine optimization and web marketing through Google search and through YouTube ads and all these, all these ways that instead of just building a website and hoping people find it, you go find the people and bring their eyeballs where
0: you want them. Yeah. And so but what does it look like? Because I think a, a distinction that your reporting helpfully makes is between the kind of disinformation or like illegal abuse of social media that got a lot of attention right after 2016 campaign. But then the huge legal terrain on which these campaigns operate that has to do with bringing to bear all of the data and pinpoint accuracy that the internet allows to like get directly at the voters you want to get at. I think this is really the key thing is that we spend so
1: much time obsessing over where were laws broken, where were campaign finance regulations violated? And of course, we should, right? I mean, if if foreign entities are p- paying in rubles to influence our elections, that's a big deal. The question, though, is one of scale. And the internet research agency bought 3,500 ads on Facebook during the 2016 election. The Trump campaign themselves bought either thousands or millions, depending on how you measure. So there's lots of stuff you can do without breaking any rule, without breaking any terms of service, without being against the law that are bad for democracy and bad for humanity. You can lie, you can be a racist, you can be a climate change denier. None of that is against the law. It just so happens to be an existential threat to our survival. So it's just a little too neat when we just sort of obsess over, okay, where was there a technical violation of the rules when actually it's sort of a frog boiling in water situation? You're looking for the one, you know,
0: illegal source of heat when actually the problem is just the heat itself. Yeah. And one of the things I think that makes Parscale such an interesting figure and such an appropriate uh, sort of sideman to Trump is that it seems so hard to parse um, the effectiveness from the bragging. And you know that seems to be a big part of deciding whether this stuff matters is answering the question of whether it even works yeah. Yeah. so how are we supposed to how are we supposed to decide that yeah i think with
1: this stuff as is
0: often the case it's somewhere
1: between this is the single magic potion and the other extreme which is it's snake oil it has no effect i think right. it's impossible to look at the entire data collection, micro-targeting social media world and say that has no effect. People are spending more and more time on social media. It's where their attention is. It's where their eyeballs are. If you can effectively target them and get them to pay attention, whether it's to ads or to organic content or to just little wisps of things that they see out of the side of their eye and then go away from, it's got to be doing something. It just has to be doing something. That said, it's not the silver bullet. It's not the thing that, oh, if you just crack that code... You can get a 20-point swing in an election, but you can maybe get a two-point swing, and that's usually
0: enough. Part of this is also the way that the social media companies themselves were participating in this because it was a potential big business line. Talk to us about, like, the embed system and how these companies were sort of working hand-in-hand with the Trump campaign and what that meant, basically.
1: Yeah, so this is one place where there was a real sharp distinction between the two campaigns. Uh Uh-huh. Um, not Clinton only and the, Trump the Clinton campaign. and the Trump campaign in 2016, the Clinton campaign was much more fully staffed. They had a lot more experts in house, and the experts were essentially saying, "We can do this ourselves. We don't need help from the big tech companies." But the big tech companies—Facebook, Google, Twitter—they were offering help to both campaigns, and the Trump campaign was like, "We don't know what we're doing. We'll take that help." So often, you know, someone like Parscale is credited for being this single-minded genius who saw the future, when in fact, he was sort of more of a a resourceful, hardworking guy who took what he could get. And one of the things he could get was that these companies were sending embeds, as they're called. The the companies don't like that term, but I do. They were were sending people to essentially embed within the campaign the way, you know, a a military reporter might embed with the troops or whatever. Uh. And they would go to Brad Parscale's uh, makeshift office in San Antonio, which was called Project Alamo. They would sit side by side with Trump campaign staffers and, and and work for them, essentially. Now, the reason that the companies wanted to do this is because by sending a Facebook employee to San Antonio and saying, hey, I bet you guys didn't know there's this one cool thing you can do with a brand lift study, or there's this one cool thing called a custom audience or whatever, by telling the campaign that was a possibility you get them to spend more money on your platform, but you also materially help the campaign. I mean, Parscale himself, when he was interviewed about this on Frontline, he said, you know, if you have a car, but you never had a manual, you might not know that there's this button you can push that makes your fuel efficiency better. It makes you go a little bit faster. Right? All those differences. Matter a huge amount when every presidential election is essentially a
0: fifty-fifty election. And so you end up talking to the embed that Facebook sent. Tell us who that who that guy is.
1: Uh, so he tried to stay anonymous during the campaign. As soon as the campaign was over, they wanted to give him credit for how much he helped. They call him they called him an MVP of the campaign. Yeah. And they sort of outed him inadvertently as this guy James Barnes, who was twenty-eight, I think, and was this guy from Tennessee who had always sort of considered himself an evangelical Republican, and he had this kind of crisis of conscience you know, after helping this campaign uh, really materially to win the election. He then ended up voting for Hillary Clinton and then is now working to essentially use the tricks of the trade now from outside the company to try to defeat Donald Trump. And part of the thesis of him and the people he works with is that the Democrats need to get their act together. They have been way too slow to adopt these tactics. They would feel that you, you can't unilaterally disarm. You have to do what it takes to win. And if you don't have an effective social media operation, you're just hampering your chances of ever winning.
0: This week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, I'll talk with our Washington correspondent about the many political battles being waged in the Capitol over how to deal with the coronavirus.
1: You couldn't imagine a president personalizing a crisis with a virus. But somehow that's, that's where we are.
0: Susan Glasser, this week on the New Yorker Radio Hour from WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so so maybe this that's a good place to sort of transition to what the Trump campaign what what are the lessons that they have taken from 2016 that They're thinking about and applying now as we go into the general election 2020.
1: Yeah. Well, so I think there's a lot of things here that are worth teasing apart, right? On the one hand, some of the things the Trump campaign has done and is continuing to do is just sort of good, smart campaigning, you know, making sure everyone who wants to be in touch with you is in touch with you, making sure every time you have a rally, you collect everyone's phone number. What the Trump campaign is also willing to do is lie allegedly cheat, allegedly steal, get uh, pushed right up to the bounds of racism and inappropriateness and insult. And those are things that I don't think the Democrats should do, right?
0: So it often gets conflated into like, well, should we get dirty? Should we fight fire with fire? You mean here uh, with with digital ads? You mean you mean pushing out messages that are misleading or, or downright false, right? Yeah. Well, and, and there's a lot of gray areas. So there are some that are just purely false.
1: Like there was a big sort of flagship one where um, back in October... Uh, Trump, who was already just assuming he was going to run against Biden, his campaign made an ad essentially alleging that the real villain in the Ukraine corruption scandal was, in fact, Joe Biden and not Donald Trump, which is false. And just it's so obviously a false premise that the Biden campaign wrote to Facebook and said, "Um, you should probably take it down because I don't think they use the word defamatory, but they said it's false. Uh And Facebook said, we we actually are not going to do that because politicians are allowed to lie on our platform, and that's
0: not against the rules. Yeah. Now they got a huge amount of heat for that. Uh, Zuckerberg. And how much of this is how much of this is philosophical, and how much of this is business?
1: Uh, I would argue that you know it's very hard to make someone believe something when his salary depends on believing the opposite. And in Mark Zuckerberg's case, he has spent literally his entire adult life pumping himself up around the premise that this thing that he made in his dorm room is going to fundamentally reshape the world for the better. And the more he gets evidence to the contrary, the more he has to fit it through some weird cognitive dissonance into this model of, no, in the long run, it's ultimately going to be better for everyone. And everyone who is telling me the opposite just doesn't see the long, the big picture.
0: And there's 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 another aspect of this that you highlight in your article, um, which is that There used to be a presumption with negative advertising uh, that that if you ran an ad that was racist, that as many, quote unquote, non-racists as racists might see it. And so there was a potential cost. There was a potential political cost to running an ad that was racist because you might just offend many, many people, many, many potential voters. Mm -hmm. But what platforms like Facebook allow you to do is potentially only show your racist ad to racists. And so the cost of blowback, you know, you just remove it.
1: Yeah. And, and we should be clear, you know, this stuff did happen previous to Donald Trump. He didn't invent racist ads. You know, there was, you know, the Willie Horton ad being the most famous example. But yeah, you would... George Bush paid a political cost for that ad. Um, in Facebook land, there might have been... Dozens of Willie Horton style ads that we never knew
0: about just nobody saw except the people who the Trump campaign and other, yeah, you're right I mean, everybody can use these tools, but the Trump campaign was very excitedly using them Everyone can and
1: I think, you know, the political realist Part of me would, would argue, you know, maybe should be using these tools now There's a larger sense of like should these tools exist and should we should anybody be using them, but that whole thing aside there's, a, there's just, it's not a level playing field with respect to how different messages travel. It just is the case that the way the algorithms are built on these platforms around emotional incitement and engagement, it is easier to rile people up with xenophobia and jingoism than it is with
0: stronger together. And there's two aspects to the micro-targeting. One of it seems to be to try to drive or juice your supporters, your turnout. But then there's the suppressive uh, side, which is targeting people who might support your opponent and trying to bum them out or dissuade them from voting. So what's the latest thinking on sort of how that worked in 2016 and how it might work uh, this year? Yeah. Well, I think it's appropriate to, to use terms like
1: bumming people out because the, the fundamental engine of social media is emotion. That's always been the case, but you know, the fundamental engine of, cable tv is is emotion but or for that matter tabloid headlines but with social media you're getting feedback in both directions so you're not only trying to pump sensationalist stuff into people to hope they don't change the channel you're also getting feedback from them saying oh i'm smashing the rage comment button or i'm smashing the retweet button or whatever you you get to see how they're responding to it and the more quickly they respond to it the more powerful and the more viral it is it's not like it's impossible to run a hope and change candidate ever again. But there is a disadvantage now because hope and change and your chest swelling with pride, those are emotions, but they're not as immediate and sharp and powerful as emotions like fear and disgust and loathing. So, you know, you can try it and we're going to, I think, see Biden try it. But there's a, there's an inherent disadvantage built in there because he's not running on a campaign of quickly lock the door. There's someone coming.
0: Yeah. Another topic you write about is data and data collection. And Parscale has said, you know, that he and um, you know Trump World have turned the Republican National Committee into like the you know one of the biggest data collection organizations uh, going. Is that true? Is that a concern? You know, is that the data collection? Should that be the concern for people in general, for voters, for, for you know, for in terms of how we participate in our government?
1: Yeah, I think everyone should be concerned about data collection just as a general matter. And yeah, look, I mean, often with this stuff, I would encourage people to think systemically when there's a temptation to think personally. A lot of times you hear people say, well, what are they doing with my data? Or how does this affect my privacy? How does this affect my addiction or my kid's phone addiction? And the larger set of concerns to me is sort of a tragedy of the commons issue. It might actually not affect you in any immediate negative way that Google knows where you are all the time. But if Google knows where everyone is at all times, we don't know exactly what they can do with that. So the the, the point with our politics is it's hard to ratchet this stuff down. Once you flood politics with money, once you flood politics with all these data points where the more they know about you, the more they can target you in ways that not only feel vaguely creepy but also carve you up into these tiny slivers in an immediate sort of cycle by cycle sense of course you understand why you know if your opponent's doing it you want to do it too but it's hard to see how we come back from this stuff like you know in the short term i get why people are into it but in the long term it's pretty
0: terrifying yeah andrew uh thanks so much yeah thanks Andrew Morantz is a staff writer and the author of Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. This has been The Political Scene. You can subscribe to this and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app and find more political analysis and commentary on newyorker.com. Feel free to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Russell Gillespie. This program was produced by Alex Barron and Kylie Warner for newyorker.com. I'm Eric Latch filling in for Dorothy Wickenden.